You are listening to a message from First Assembly of God. We are a church on a mission to restore everyone, everywhere, to a loving and holy God. If today's message inspires you in any way, would you consider sharing it with a friend? This is just one of the many ways that you can be a part of what God is doing here at First Assembly. Through Matthew chapter 5 and Jesus' probably his defining Message. It's all compacted right there in three chapters in the book of Matthew. We call it the Sermon on the... And it begins with the Beatitudes, these ways of being blessed. And we've talked about what it means to live a blessed life, to be a happy life. Because to be blessed in the Greek, it's simply to be stretched out. The, the root of it means to be pulled all the way to the edges, to pull it tight and fill it up with goodness. It's about being abundant in your life, being prosperous, being overwhelmed with goodness. One translator translates all the Beatitudes simply this way. Happy. Happier these people. Happier these people. Happier these people. And isn't it good to be happy? All right, five of us think it's good to be happy. All the rest of you morbid souls, I'm sorry. Isn't it good to be happy? I would much rather be happy than sad. And I've been both. I've been extremely happy and I've been extremely stuck in sadness and I much prefer the happiness in life. So how do you find this happiness on this quest of the blessed life, the happy life? How do you find it? We've looked at these and each one of these beatitudes that we've looked at from Jesus are kind of ironic, maybe paradoxical, because what he says about happiness doesn't seem to be very happy. And we've been talking each week that maybe there's a problem with happiness. Not with the state of happiness. We all want that and that's good. But our understanding of what really leads to happiness. Most of us want happiness by engineering the happenings of our life. That's the root of the word happy. Hap. Happenings. The happenstance. The happenings of our life. If we have the right things happening then I will be happy. And we give so much of our energy and thought and money and our effort to engineer the happenings of life. If I can control the happenings, I will be happy. But each time Jesus says, happy are these people, we recognize that the kind of happiness or the pathway to happiness that Jesus is talking about has very little to do with the happenings but the God re-engineered habits of our life. The most people want to engineer their happenings, but they fail to open themselves up to God's deep re-engineering of their own personal habits. There is a way to live and a way to think, a way to be that God can re-engineer in us that leads to this blessed life. And so we've looked at each of these challenging statements that maybe on the surface we just read them and move on. They're only one sentence each. Yet they are so powerful, so compacted and compressed with powerful truth on the path to a life of happiness. We began with, happy are the people who are poor, which makes no sense. Jesus' word for poor isn't just, you know, barely making ends meet. You know, I'm in the, on the realm of American poverty, not that. He's talking complete destitution, the inability to ever have any hope of making ends meet, completely destitute, 
How is that happy? How can a person say, I'm on the path to the blessed life when I am so utterly poor and destitute? And to make it more difficult to understand, Jesus says, I'm not talking about money. He says, I'm talking about spirit. How can happy people be the ones who are poor in spirit, destitute of the spirit of God? I thought Jesus would say, be filled with the spirit. Because the pathway to happiness we discovered, this is a few weeks ago. The pathway to the happy, blessed, abundant life comes when you realize how utterly depraved you really are. That the more destitute you realize you are, the more open you are to the fullness of God's love and the love of others. The moment I think I've got a little bit of this all taken care of, I'm not quite totally poor, I love God a little bit less and I judge people a little bit more. And my life shrivels and collapses upon itself. But when I realize I am utterly destitute, my view of God explodes in all of God's largeness. My love for people expands because suddenly I see everyone just like I see myself. Blessed are the poor. Then last week, blessed are the meek. Which, did I predict it right on the Super Bowl or what? Did the meek team win? Absolutely. Blessed are the meek people, which doesn't sound normal in the American culture because it's the meek that never get off the bottom rung of the ladder. They're always at the bottom. They never get the great parking spot. They're always letting other people walk in front of them, go in front of them. They never get to the front of the line. Our culture says blessed are the powerful who use everything within their means to grasp and attain and achieve and climb. Jesus said, no, no. Blessed are the meek. And we discovered what it meant to be meek in Jesus' culture and in his language. Perfectly powerful. Never too much, not too much power, not excessive use of force or energy or anger, nor the lack thereof. You are neither a bully or a wimp. You are exactly who God has called you to be, utilizing all the authority and emotion and power and influence that you need at that exact time, never any more, never any less, perfectly meek. And when the person discovers meekness, they inherit the earth. You inherit the gifts and the calling. Your piece of life that God wants you to expand and maximize and use to the fullest, you inherit that. Today, Jesus ties two great concepts together in one verse. Matthew 5, 6. Happy are those, blessed are those. Oh, the blissful life of those who are hungry. And those who are thirsty for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. How many like it when you're satisfied? I love it when I'm satisfied. Let me ask you, what satisfies you? I mean, as an American culture, we not only want to be happy. Jesus begins with that. Blessed, abundant, prosperous, filled with bliss. And then he ends with the word satisfied, satisfaction. I mean, these are two of the American dreams. To be happy and satisfied. I mean, for what, like 40 years now, since Mick Jagger and Keith Richards wrote the song, we've been singing as a culture, I can't get no, you know, you try and I try and I try and I try and I can't get no. That's right. As a culture, we crave satisfaction. It's been that way since the Garden of Eden. The snake slithers in and says, I know you think you've got it, but don't you think God may be 
holding back on you a little bit. There's a, a little bit more you could have. You could be a little more satisfied if you just go about it your own way. Isn't it good? Don't we desire? Don't we crave to be both happy and satisfied? I mean, what satisfies you? I mean, when I think of the word satisfied, I, well, maybe it's because of this time of year. Many of you know that Angela and I do our own little getaway in the middle of January. And so we're only about a month out and I can still taste the Bien Truche. That's our favorite little Mexican place in Geneva, Illinois. We had a new dish there, Bien Truche, this year. And when I ate it, it was so good. It was awesome. I told my wife, these were my exact words. I've got an entire mariachi band playing in my mouth. It was just awesome satisfied. For my wife on that trip, it's the warm, fresh pita bread from a restaurant called Nof Nof. And I love the baklava there. It's like the best Mediterranean little spot. And you're going to think I'm all about food. And you're not far off from the truth. Thank God for a fast metabolism. It's helped me my whole life. What satisfies you? Student, maybe it's acing the test. Employer, Maybe it's taking the business, taking your project, taking your team, and accomplishing some great task on time and on budget and working beyond your wildest dreams. Grad student, maybe it's presenting your thesis to those, you know, with greater education and your review board, and they say, hey, you're on the right track, and you're just satisfied. We all desire to be satisfied. For me... I'm satisfied when I'm experiencing the end result. But what Jesus said is the opposite of that. For me, I'm satisfied when I'm full. I'm satisfied when I look at the job well done. I'm satisfied when I'm enjoying the end product. Look at the words of Jesus. And once again, in this little simple one-sentence pathway to happiness pathway to satisfaction, what Jesus says doesn't make sense to me. He says, blessed are those who what? Hunger and thirst. It's not blessed those who are already filled. Blessed are those who are hungry. Blessed are those who are thirsty. That's odd. Let me ask you a question. Who understands hunger better? You or Jesus's audience? Can I tell you, we read this and we don't get hunger and thirst. They understood hunger and thirst. I rarely go thirsty very long. You know, I'm probably never more than a minute away from a drink of water. I'm probably rarely more than a few minutes away from something to eat. If I have a little bit of hunger, I can walk into the kitchen and get a snack. If I'm a little bit hungry in my office, I can walk down the hallway to the break room and find a granola bar. Three times a day when I'm hungry, I eat and my wife is a fantastic cook. I don't really know hunger. And I really don't understand thirst. And I certainly don't think that being in a state of hunger is satisfying and happy. You know that that's true? Have you ever thought about it? The hungry people really aren't the happy people. Have you thought about it? Hungry people are not happy. When is your family the happiest? It's not when they're hungry. What's for dinner? 
If you're sitting next to someone who's got a newborn, or if you're sitting next to someone that's got a little baby, an infant in their family, well, first you probably have to wake them up this morning because they're all sleep deprived. You know, nudge them a little bit and ask them, is your hungry baby a happy baby? No. Hungry people are not happy. This week for the first time, this last Wednesday, for the first time in like 20 years, I got to be a church volunteer in the nursery. That was awesome. Our Wednesday night service, I mean, Chris Kalap's teaching a teaching group just started. You can still jump in. It's a group called uh, uh, Discovering the Hidden Gems in God's Word. So I think it's like a six, seven-week Wednesday night series. I kind of observed what was happening. We were packed. All the chairs were full. It was off and running. I wasn't needed there. Pastor Katie and Kenny and his wife, Katie, were all down in the youth group. That was going awesome. Pastor Julie had the kids, and my wife was the volunteer in the nursery. And she says, hey, do you want to help me out? If you're not doing anything else, I could really use you know, some help in the nursery. And I said, no. No, I didn't. I, I said, sure. So she took the little baby, and I had the three-year-olds. And can I tell you, a hungry three-year-old isn't as good or as happy as a eating three-year-old. I mean, every time they said, hey, can we get some more animal crackers? My answer was, yeah, I would never say no. If I say no to animal crackers, I'm not going to have as much fun in there. So just keep getting whatever you want. Sure. So if if your three-year-old was in there and came home on a sugar high, I'm very sorry. Blame the pastor. Because I know it's not the hungry who are happy. It's the people whose hunger has already been met. But Jesus says, to an audience that gets hunger and thirst like we don't understand. He says, when you are hungry, and he uses the present tense. In English, it doesn't translate very well, but it it would be as if Jesus said, blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting. That means while they're in the state of hunger, ongoing, continually knowing that I'm on the brink of starvation, that I'm on the brink of of an unquenchable thirst, I am desperate for food and water. And Jesus' audience understood that. Can you imagine how hard it was for them to have food and water? Much different than a mire in a refrigerator. In fact, did you know in the Old Testament, it was a command, a commandment for employers to pay their workers every day. Not paycheck twice a month, not first 15th, not every other Friday, not once a month. You pay your employees Every single night. You work a day, you get paid that night. Why would that be so important to God that it was a command for his people? Because his people were always one day away from being really, really, really hungry. They had to get paid so they could come home and feed their family. Do you understand? Very different from anything we've experienced. And so here's this audience that understood Jesus' language and the terminology. We're happy, we're blessed when we are constantly in the state of hunger and ongoing thirst. That doesn't make much sense. And then he really floors us. We hunger and we thirst. An ongoing, unending, ceaseless, continually present state of hunger and thirst. For what? For righteousness. And that is the pathway to satisfaction. That's weird. I mean, you ask any Miss America contestant, we should hunger and thirst for love, world peace, and all these really big things that are important. 
And yet Jesus says, no, the one thing you should hunger for, the one thing you have to have an ongoing thirst for, if you want to experience the blissful happiness and the end result being a satisfied life, hunger and thirst for righteousness. What did Jesus mean? What is righteousness? What is it? It's this state of being in which things are right. That the way that God has designed things to be are actually how they now are. That all the things in this world that are twisted, out of alignment, out of order, are now turned around and set righteously. Imagine your life is a Rubik's Cube. Imagine this community, this world, people, civilization is a Rubik's Cube that is an absolute mess. The state of righteousness is when the hands of God manipulate, change, transform. Boom. Righteous. You get the picture. Blessed are you. Fulfilled are you. Happy are you. On the path towards satisfied life. When you are hungering and thirsting for being right, having things set right in the eyes of God. Now, can I be brutally honest? Can, can you let your pastor let his guard down just a little bit? This beatitude is easy to check off my list. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be satisfied. Got it, Lord. Thank you. For 40 years, I've been working on allowing you to make me righteous. For 40 years, I've been seeking you, praying to you. There's rarely a day where I don't spend time in God's word and prayer or praying for my family. I feel like I've got righteous relationships. My wife and I have a good relationship together. I'm doing well with my kids. My world seems to be set right before God. Move on. What's your next one, Jesus? I'm ready to go. Got that one taken care of. And that's so wrong. Like every beatitude, this one's no different. There's more there than meets the eye. Jesus is saying something that if it doesn't rock our world, we're not listening well. Happy, fulfilled, stretched out, poured into are those who are in this constant state, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And if I think about it, I tend to define righteousness through my own lens. I see the righteous things in my life and I feel like I'm satisfied. But that's not all that Jesus is saying to me or to you. In fact, there's more to what Jesus is saying than you've probably really thought about. There's an interesting sentence structure here for Jesus. It was great. I talked in seconds, uh, right in between services to our, our resident French expert, Lisa Brittingham, who, who follows the sermon in her French Bible. And she's like, oh, it just reads so much better in French than in English. And she got it. When Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the case of that noun righteousness is a bit odd. And it's something that has rocked me this week. When you would talk about wanting to eat something in, in, in Greek, and it's the same as true in French, evidently. I learned that today. There's a certain case you would use, a way of, uh, of, of defining that direct object, that noun. Hunger and thirst 
for righteousness. There's a way that you would normally talk that would say something like this. I am thirsty for a drink of the well. Did you get the word of? If I were to say to you, I want to drink of the well, that would make sense because I don't want to drink the whole well. Can you imagine drinking a whole well of water? I just want a cup from the well. I want my portion of the cup. If you say, I love chocolate, you could say, I love all the chocolate in the world. That makes sense. But if you say, I want to eat chocolate, you're not saying, I want to eat all of the chocolate. I want to eat of chocolate. Makes sense. Are you with me? There's a way for Jesus to say, blessed are those who hunger and are thirsty for their portion of righteousness. You want to partake of righteousness, but that's not at all what he says. He flips it around. He uses a definite article, the, I think it's circled up there. And the word righteousness is in, not in the genitive, which means of, but it's in the accusative, which means all. And suddenly Jesus is saying something very different than how I usually read it. It's as if, well, it's like exactly what happened when Kenny and I went to Portillo's this week. It was Thursday. He had no lunch appointments with people. It was Thursday. I had no lunch appointments with people. I didn't pack a lunch. He didn't pack a lunch. So we said, let's go. What are you hungry for? I'm hungry for of Portillo's. When I say to Kenny, I'm hungry for Portillo's, I'm not saying I am hungry for Portillo's. I'm saying I'm going to look at the menu and I'm going to pick a bacon cheeseburger with onion rings and water because I want to, you know, watch the calories. So... (laughs) So we go, when I say, Kenny knows exactly what I mean. I'm hungry for portillos. I'm hungry for of my portion of the whole. I would like that. Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm hungry for portillos. I want that, 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 that. In fact, everything that's on the menu, I'll take it. I want it all. In fact, whatever you have on the shelves, whatever's in the fridge, load me up. What do you have got in the freezer? I'll take it. And I hear there's a Vienna beef truck making a delivery today, I'll take everything in there too. Everything that is Portillo's, I want it, I'm craving it, I must have it. Jesus says, happier those who are hungry, ongoing, constant, and are thirsty. This present tense thirst, not for of righteousness. I don't want just a piece of God's righteousness. Everything that is righteous, May it be done in my life. That's different. That, that wouldn't have made sense to his hearers. They would have expected him to say, you want your portion of righteousness. Here you go, Joel. This is what you can handle. This is what's on your plate. Jesus says, no, no, you want it all. Give it to me all. Give it all to me. And then Jesus spends the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, or a good portion of it, helping blow my mind and open my heart to how huge and deep and sincere God's righteousness is. Let me tell you, God's righteousness is broader and wider than I know. God's righteousness is deeper, more internalized than I understand. And God sees my motives so clearly that it needs to humble me. Blessed are those who are hungry and who are thirsting for all of God's righteousness. Here's how the New Living Translation translates it. 
Blessed are those who are hungry and are thirsty for what? To, to an American in English, that doesn't sound like righteousness. Those are two different things. But to Jesus in Hebrew and in Greek, it's not. It's one word, one concept. That righteousness, in my mind, is often about me. Justice is about those around me. Justice is about setting things right in the world. What is broken, what is unrighteous, what is wrong, what is that Rubik's Cube that's all twisted and out of alignment, everything that is illegitimate in the eyes of God, that is broken and twisted and wrong. Justice, may it be made right in before God. Are you with me? We think of that as one thing, and we think of righteousness as very personal. I'm right with God. My family's right with God. I'm okay. I did my devotions. The whole world's going to hell, but that's okay because I'm righteous. That's not how God thinks. God's righteousness is broader than that. In fact, am I hungering and thirsting for more than just me? Am I hungry and thirsty for God's righteousness to be birthed in the whole world? That's God. That's not me. In fact, have you ever thought about how Jesus taught us to pray? Remember the story the disciples came to Jesus? Lord, teach us how to pray. And Jesus gave what we call the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer, right? Many of you know it in the old King James. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in my life as it is in heaven. No, may your will be done on Now, that's big. In other words, may your will, may your righteousness flow over the whole earth. May your righteousness extend to the homeless at Safe Harbor that our team feeds when they're there twice a month feeding. May your righteousness come into this room. May you set right what is wrong. May your righteousness be there when there is injustice. And mistreatment. May your righteousness be there in Syria as so many people are dying. May your righteousness be there to rescue the abused child. Are you with me? I don't think that with righteousness. I think of my little world. Jesus, may your will be done in me. I spend time in your word. I pray. Thank you for your righteousness. But Jesus said, no, no, no. You're just wanting to eat your one menu item. There's a whole world. There's a whole planet that needs my righteousness. Hunger and thirst for that too. That's rocked me this week. And then Jesus begins just dissecting us in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. We don't have time. And frankly, I shouldn't take the time. You need to feed yourself. Spend a week, two weeks, a month just pouring into or letting the Sermon on the Mount pour into you. So let me just do the highlights, but you need to go home and study this and let this seep in. So Jesus says, blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting for all of God's righteousness. And it's much bigger than just your world. It is the earth that God's will would be accomplished. And then he begins in the Sermon on the Mount. He says in verse 20 of chapter 5, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. That rocks my world because the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the best at looking and being righteous. They knew all the laws and they kept them all. And yet Jesus says, I've got to be more righteous than them. And then he goes on to explain how 
not just how wide righteousness is, but how deep, how internal it's got to be. Because it's easier just keep the laws on the outside and break them on the inside. Story is told of a little kid in church, kept standing up during the sermon. Mom grabs him, puts him down. You gotta sit down. He would stand back. You gotta sit down. Up and down, up and down. It would go. And finally, with all the meek power she had, grabbed him, set him down. Says, "You have to sit down. Fine, but I'm standing up on the inside." That's how we all are. So Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, I know you say don't murder. I know the law says you can't murder. Don't kill the innocent. But I'm telling you, have you said you're an idiot to somebody? Have you called anyone a fool? Have you verbally killed them? Then you're guilty of murder in your heart. The righteousness is not outward. It's inward. It goes internally much deeper. He says, I know you say don't commit adultery. I haven't cheated on my spouse. I'm not sleeping outside, having sex outside of marriage. I'm good. Jesus says, no, no, no. What's in your heart? Are you looking at women as an object to fulfill your own sexual desire? You may not act on it, but you're thinking about it. You're viewing other people as a means to your sexual satisfaction. You're abusing them in your mind. You're guilty. Because your righteousness has got to go far deeper than just the external. And he goes throughout chapter 5. And he keeps saying, oh, you seek revenge. You say eye for eye, tooth for tooth. All I do, Lord, is keep things even. Wrong. Is that how God treats people? Does God get even with everybody? Do you know how many people curse God and God still blesses them? Are you that way? And he ends this chapter by rocking our world. And says, be perfect just like your father is perfect in heaven. That's how righteous you should be. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for perfection on the inside. Oh, man, I've got a long ways to go. And then Jesus starts the next chapter. Be careful. You're going to try to do your righteous deeds in front of other people to impress them. He says you'll give to the poor, you'll fast, you'll pray, and you'll make sure you have one eye open, making sure people are watching you. You'll say to people, hey, I'm praying for you. And your real motivation isn't really to pray for them. It's to make sure they know you love them and you care and you want to look like a good friend. God sees through the broken motives in our heart, in my heart. And suddenly when I take this hunger and thirst for righteousness, I see what Jesus said, that it's all of God's righteousness. It's his personal work in our life. It's his just world in the, in the planet, on the earth, in communities and societies. And then I see it's about internalizing his, his truth and living it out on the inside, not the outside. And it's about my motivation. Suddenly I back up and say, oh, man, I can't just read through verse 6 and move on. Am I hungry? Am I thirsty for that kind of all-encompassing, totally broad, totally deep and internalized and motives of great sincerity? Am I hungry for that? If I am, satisfaction. Happy are those. Blessed are those. Stretched out, filled up, filled with abundance to capacity are those in this constant, ongoing state, not of knowing they're full, but knowing they're hungry and they're thirsty for all the righteousness that is God in all the earth 
from the most broadest of ways to the most delicate and personal to the inner obedience to the most sincere of motives, righteous. Are you that kind of hungry? Are you that kind of thirsty? Maybe you're here today, and frankly, you're, you're all satisfied. Pastor Joel, I've been eating at this table for a long time. For me, it's been 40 years I've been following Jesus. I got this righteousness thing down. Do my devotions almost every day, pray to God, no forgiveness, I know how to confess my sins. I got this thing going. I'm righteous before the Lord. I know Jesus died for me. Everything is good. I'm fine. Oh, you are so not fine. You are so not fine. It's not blessed are those who have eaten enough that they're content. Then they'll be satisfied. No, can I tell you, it is the root, it is dissatisfaction that compels us and opens us to the blessing of God. Jesus knows something about hunger and thirst that we miss. Teacher, have you ever had a hungry student? Have you ever had a hungry student that just was insatiable in their desire to learn more? And the more you fed them, the more hungry they got. Have you ever seen an athlete who was hungry? Maybe they didn't have quite the raw talent, but man, they had the hunger and the drive. First one at practice, the last one to leave. Going over the routines of the fundamentals always because they're not satisfied and they know they must hunger and thirst or they'll never be all that they can be. Jesus knows some of us have just run out of hunger. We think we've eaten enough. Can I tell you that's because you're lying to yourself. You only see your little sliver of righteousness. And I'm not diminishing what God has done. That's good. But oh, there is so much more. God wants to go much deeper inside you than you can possibly imagine. God wants to stretch your vision of righteousness much more broadly than you've ever thought. And God wants to challenge and change your motivations in ways that you've never contemplated. Righteousness, all of it. Are you hungry? Are you hungry? Maybe you're here and you're saying, Pastor Joel, I'm desperately hungry. You look at your life and you say, righteous, that's not me. Maybe you can look at your actions, your behavior. You don't even have to worry about your internal motivations. and what's in, You just like, look at my life. It is not pleasing in God. That Rubik's Cube thing, yeah, I'm all messed up. I don't have a single row that's right. Can I tell you, your pathway to being made right with God is that hunger. Here's the good news. If you're hungry to know righteousness, if you're hungry to be made right with God, the good news is this. You can't. And that's powerfully good news. Because if you could on your own, you would forever work and strive and struggle to control your life Right? Engineer all the happenings. Make sure you are doing all the things you have to do. Get all the gold stars to make up for all the bad things you've done. And you would be forever endlessly trying to please God. And you would never, ever, ever, ever get there. That's the point of the good news. That Jesus died. Because Joel can never be righteous enough. I can fake it on the outside. I can try to make up for all the things I've done in the past, but I can never undo them and I can never live good enough. In fact, that is the beauty 
of the good news of the gospel. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, I'm no longer counting on my own righteousness. I'm not hungry and thirsty for my own righteousness. I'm looking to Jesus to be my righteousness. The righteous one died to forgive me and make me righteous. That's great news. Paul writes in Romans, he goes, my my works aren't making me righteous. People are counted as righteous, not because of their work, not because of what you are doing to impress God, but because your faith, God, your faith in Christ, God declares you as righteous. See, Jesus is our righteousness. We hunger and thirst, this continual ongoing thirst for Jesus to do his righteous work in our life, personally and societally. Jesus, do your righteous will in every part of me and around me. What you want done, I'm all in and I'm hungry for it. Close with this verse. You know this. Psalm 23. Will you read it with me? The scripture will be on the screen behind me. Let's read it together. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me in paths of righteousness. My prayer for us, for First Assembly, my desire before the Lord is to walk those paths of righteousness this week. Many of us are used to our normal path of righteousness, right? Get up in the morning, you do your routine, you do your Bible study, you do your prayer, your internal sense of righteousness is fulfilled and that's fantastic, but that's not all of it. Will you open your eyes this week to the righteousness that God wants to do all around you. Will your heart be open to the righteous work of God in this world? Over the last few weeks, I've been so pleased and so thankful. Do you know we've got a group of men that are now meeting every month to pray and to plan and to strategize how to serve homeless veterans in our community. And they're getting so close to being able to do some brand new ministry. That is what is righteous in this world. I'm proud of our Safe Harbor team who are now serving about 80 people twice a month who are in desperate need of food. I'm proud of our team that are serving uh, those who are not native English speakers in our ESL tutoring group, those that are helping with Habitat for Humanity, those today who will sign up to fly all the way over to Indonesia to sit with Muslim students and tell them about Jesus. May God do righteous works that go far extend beyond our own little personal lives. And that's beautiful and that's good, but it needs to overflow into the world. Amen? May you walk down righteous paths this week. Hopefully in the chair, in the little hymnal shelf in front of you, are some chopsticks. Can you reach down there and see if you've got them? Hopefully they were put back there before second service. You got a set of chopsticks? How many are good at using chopsticks? How many, like, try chopsticks for five seconds and then they go back to a fork? Right, that's me. Here's my point. I want you to put these on your dash. Well, don't put them on your dashboard. Maybe that's a weapon. I don't know. Put it on the seat beside you. Put it where you do your daily devotions. 
And I want you to think about God using you to eat off his righteous menu with something that you're not used to eating. Do something. Talk to people you normally want to talk to. Pray for people you normally want to pray for. Dine on a menu item that's new. Now, if you're part of our friends that are from uh, the East, if you're some of our South Asian friends, and you know exactly how to do this, guess what? I've got some plastic forks for you. You can turn these in at our welcome desk, and you can walk out of here with a plastic American fork to remind you I can eat something new out of the righteousness of God. We hope that you got a lot out of today's message and that you'll share it with a friend. To stay connected with what's happening at First Assembly, be sure to go to the App Store and type in 1-A-G-B-N to download the app. Remember, God created you to make a difference. So go and make a difference.